I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guests today are Drs. Lada and Stephen Sheha. They're here to discuss their new book, Psychoanalysis Under Occupation. You can follow them at Instagram at Psychoanalyst Activist, at Decolonizing Humanities, at Decolonizing Photography. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Chapart Books, 2019. You can visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can also follow me at Instagram and Twitter at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore at Instagram and Twitter. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. I would like to say, first of all, thank you so much for being here. You two have been so busy doing so many events since this book came out. It's astonishing. So thank you for taking the time to come. Anything for you, (laughs) truly. And I'm glad too that I've gotten to go to several of those events and seen kind of not only your presentation, but the different reactions and questions and how you feel them because yeah, it's a difficult topic, a difficult topic. And you all get a lot of shit thrown at you. basically (laughs) and it's so impressive how you're able to like stay your ground stay on your point and like continue to articulate your points and your ideas so clearly in the Mm -hmm. face of all of that Mm -hmm. well one of the things it's funny because I feel like it's a parallel process like I think one of the reasons why we wanted this book in the world and why we wanted to write it like we wrote it so unrelenting in center and Palestinians that's the parallel process of when we're presenting. And that's what guides us in like how we respond to things. Because what we've noticed over the years is most interventions are deflective, Um, right? And it's sort of like what we see with sort of whiteness recentering itself. And it might be for good intentions and it might be people really trying to earnestly work through things. um, Or you might have, you know, in this case, super Zionists who just can't handle reality right and but regardless of what end of the spectrum it's at the end point is decentering palestine and palestinians and so we really have learned over the years and in our work and in our struggle and our community building with folks in palestine like that is the purpose of these interventions mm. consciously or unconsciously the purpose is to deflect and Palestine gets lost in the mix. Mm. So how do you disrupt 
that process. And that's, I think, where our responses come from. But it, and I, I want you to also lend your analysis to this, but I also feel like surprisingly, we've had mm-hmm. a lot less mm-hmm. pushback. Like it's, I love hearing this from you because you're seeing it as somebody like watching the process unfold. And so it's really interesting to hear you say that. And he and I are just sitting there being like, where, where are they? Like, <laughs> where, I mean, we've had like people write emails and try to get mm-hmm. some of our mm-hmm. uh, events canceled or, um, you know, complaining or, or threatening people who've invited us not to send uh, referrals anymore to them. That happens like behind the scenes, which very few people know that that's what happens. Um, I lost a consulting job <laughs> because of it, where they were just like, no, we're not going to do this because you're doing all this stuff with Palestine. But like, that's the, that's stuff behind the scenes. But in, in the actual events, I've been surprised and that it's been really like banal, again, decentering things that people end up saying, and you have to field it in a way that doesn't lose the thread. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, it's funny because, you know, when you're reared in this, in the struggle for Palestine uh, for a long time, you can see that topography has changed so much. So, you know, through people, pe- a few people, sort of, you know, and they're amateurs, right? It's just kind of like, throwing, it's very easy to say when you know your truth. It's very easy to speak your truth, you know. Um, but also, I think we're at a point, you know, when I mean, when you have a, an incredibly vanilla mainstream organization like Amnesty International mm-hmm. saying that the colonial state now known as Israel is an apartheid state, not only in the occupied territories that are internationally recognized by the UN as in, uh, occupied territories. I mean, Jer- Jerusalem, West, West Bank and Golan, I mean, uh, and uh, uh, Gaza and of course Golan are, no one recognizes these as anything but being occupied by Israel. So that's not a controversial thing. So the, Amnesty didn't say Israel is an apartheid state just in the occupied territories. It said, all Palestinians under Israeli rule are second class, if not of that, citizens or, or subjects. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, when you when we're, we're that far in, um, it becomes very easy also to speak your truth compared to, you know, 20 years ago where you couldn't say the word Palestine. I mean, you, we did, but one would, just the word Palestine itself would be incendiary. It's still true in psychoanalysis. That's true, but it is, it is, it is. And, and psychoanalysis, to bring it back to psychoanalysis, <laughs> it still remains a remarkable, politically remarkably uh, staid and reactionary, um, reactionary um, feel when it comes to Palestine. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Even though the tides so, really are, the tide they, has they're shifting. And 100%. I, you see folks, you know, it, one of the things I've been touching about this book, particularly in the work we've done with this book, but also the, um, you know, being engaged, like you said, doing so many things is seeing people shift over the last, let's say 10 years. Mm -hmm. Like I'm 
I'll speak for my, you've been active a lot longer um, in psychoanalysis. I've been pretty active for the last 10 or so years. And to see the massive shift people have made and some of the touching things is to like be along the journey with people as these truths become more and more difficult to deny. Like you, if you are now not sort of on board with why Palestine is an important question, why psychoanalysis needs to take this seriously, why it's our ethical imperative to speak to these issues. Like there's some very heavy duty disavowal you're engaging in and or collusion. And that, that is ideological period, because I think we can see where the whole field is moving and that there still is this piece, you know, a small piece, even of super progressive people fighting every other fight under the sun when Palestine is mentioned, something shifts, right? Um, There's something deeply troubling still about that piece. And at the same time, it really has been just remarkable to see the shift. And for me, I, I think that in large part, that is due to the organizing and community, community building and pushing of largely folks of color and minority folks, um, more and more Arab and Palestinian voices in the context of the United States psychoanalysis, where like we joke that there like used to be one or two of us and like now we have a whole network. And then the folks that were in, that are in solidarity with us and that are in solidarity with us, not just like performatively, but out of this real commitment to liberation struggles overall, like recognizing the synergy between these liberation struggles and that those of us, all of us, and like, I obviously I count you in this, right? And the people that we know is to recognize how all these struggles actually are central to the work of psychoanalysis. That's not a periphery thing. We're not like being social justice warriors and putting it in square quotes because, you know, that's used pejoratively. But to truly say part of our psychoanalysis you know, when people, people are always like, this is not my psychoanalysis. I'm like, you demonstrate it's not your psychoanalysis. <laughs> like, that's why we're pushing. What's what, so exactly what we're pushing for is this psychoanalysis that does not, that sees these things as intricately, you know, related and, and sort of connected and that we, we refuse, all of us have been refusing to do this ridiculous split. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and seeing that as like the life force of what this, this emerging generation of psychoanalysis really mm-hmm. looks like. Yeah, and I just, I, I, even you're talking, I just, I, I was talking to you the other day and, and just, I was just thinking about, we've said this before. I think, you know, number one, as we've said before, is like, why would not, why would psychoanalysis not be saturated with the real, real world <laughs> in the last, you know, five, 10 years of what has happened in the real world and those changes. And so, so many people have just settled you know, they've discovered by the Me Too movement about, you know, the their undeniable place and positionality towards whiteness, in, you know, with the, the movement for Black lives. You know, so I think there's a, it's easy to call it a generational shift. And I think I always struggle with the generational argument, but I think it's definitely one of its time, mm-hmm. right? Of a zeitgeist sort of thing, you know, that like, the world has collapsed upon itself and the world has collapsed upon uh, psychoanalysis where 
it's not allowed to hold those disavows anymore. Um, I think, as you said, organizing, there's a lot of old guard out there who've been punching out, you know, the struggle for Palestine for 20, 25 years, you know? Which is why the generational argument doesn't hold up. No, I mean, yeah. and that's, you know, you know, Lynn and, and Steve Portuguese and Nancy Hollander. Susan Gutwell. Susan Gutwell. Yeah. You know, the people who are just amazing. So like, what is the different, what, they were doing that work for a long time. So what is the, what is the difference? And I think the fact of the matter is that, you know, the world, the worldliness of, of, of psychoanalysis can't be ignored fully anymore. You know, this, this contrived sort of you know, binary between the social and the psyche and the therapeutic space and non-therapeutic space, you know, it has kind of crashed upon themselves. So just like whiteness is really in a state of crisis, right? A crisis in maintaining its hegemony and it will it will co-opt and it will find ways to recuperate itself and, and you know, include non-whiteness or, or expand whiteness to be more inclusive. Psychoanalysis, I think, is at that moment too, which is again, just to bring it back to your comment, just kind of like, you know, these spaces that we're in, for us, they are not that difficult, you know? And on the other hand, like we're so shored up because if you have, you know, 20 people in the room and only one or two are these, you know, people, there's the old guard, right wingers, this is a, an inversion from what it used to be, where yes. it'd be 19 against you and one yes. uh, you know, ally in the room. So yeah. So which has been what it's looked like, yeah. you know, and you, you know, of the, the the places you've come, I think you've probably noticed that too. <laughs> you know, one yeah, or two outliers. <laughs> no, that makes sense. It is a big shift in that way. But I think it's also important how you how you equate it or how you draw the parallel like if people want to understand what colonization was like for people being colonized there's an example that's happening right now <laughs> and has been happening for the past what 70 80 years um and look look how people are dealing with it and this whole argument of like there's both sides and these kinds of things that we see on the listservs is just absurd yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there's both sides and you know the latest iteration of these things, and we, we see these conflagrations on listservs across, you know, across different organizations, across different subgroups. Um, the shift in the latest conflagration that I know you also have been reading is that people are finally starting to say things like, this would be absurd for us to say there are two sides to like right. Jim, you know, Jim Crow South, for example. Right. Or was there a whole it, culture not? Exactly. This like nobody would ever think to say these things because they're unconscionable, right? Not because you're like sort of going along with the moment or being performative, but because truly it would be unconscionable to say when you see something so explicit, when you have uh, eyewitnesses, when you have narratives, indigenous narratives telling you about these things, that says a lot about you that your, your choice is to ask these questions to really find and who put the burden of proof on the person who's going through this to explain to you. And this is part of like the Amnesty International thing is really important in a mainstream way, right? Because it's such a mainstream, you know, organization that has taken this sense. And, but for folks on the ground, this is also deeply like, on. It, it's always this two-way thing of like, yes, recognition and sort of legitimacy is important. And on the other hand, how many Palestinians 
have had to say this for how long? You're not telling them anything new when you say this. It has a particular importance. And at the same time, when we hear a report like that, it's upon us to say, why did it take us until this report to come out for us to like truly get what's going on? When countless people have told you, when Palestinians have said this thing, this very thing, like verbatim for this song, and all of a sudden Amnesty International does it, and they're like, oh, okay, now, now we believe it, right? Um, it's sort of like the mass indigenous graves that have been dug out in the settler colonial state now known as Canada, right? None of us doubted that they were there because indigenous people have been telling us for ages that they are there. And then all of a sudden, when people start seeing them, they're like, oh, this is undeniable. It's the same. And I think I'm, I'm using those examples because I think that is the, that's the next step for us is to really, if we're taking it seriously, to look at ourselves as a field, to look at ourselves in the psychoanalytic way that we supposedly espouse, there's something curious about why that continues to happen. Why is it that we continue to place the burden of proof and who has to constantly tell us over and over and over again, this is actually what's happening. And why is there no movement until like an external source that we legitimize ends up telling us that, right? And this is part of the reason actually why in our, in our book, it's exclusively Palestinian. We really don't really talk about the state now known as Israel. We don't really talk about Israeli people's sort of experience of this because that is what is missing is Palestinian voices sort of articulating this in an unrelenting way, not because they haven't, they have been saying this forever, but because people haven't, don't listen, don't, don't sort of place it in the same position as they might other voices. Yeah. I, you know, I just, I, I, I just want to add also, and thank you for that, because that's really important to think about, you know, as you were saying, sort of, you know, invitations, whether they're abstract and metaphorical or concrete, you know, to dialogue, to find two sides, to have discussions, to be civil, um, which of course, I forgot what you said about their unconscionable sort of things to ask and unconscionable positions to hold because they're unconscionable because we know the political position <laughs> that the other side is. If someone is a Holocaust denier, we know they're not just like, you know, innocently saying that, hey, I'm just arguing the science, you know? No, you're, you're an anti-Semite. You're an anti-Semite who's al aligning yourself right. with Nazis who had an unquestionable plan and executed that plan unquestionably to genocide the you know, Jews of Europe. We know that, right? And if you kind of, right? So there's like, no one takes that, there's no, there's no, there's no ambiguity in, in, in sort of saying, hey, let's just dialogue with this person who says, okay, it wasn't 6 million Jews, it was 200,000, right? Because that's what these deniers do, right? There's no, we, we know you, we know you, you anti-Semite. We know where you're coming from and we know what your motivations are, right? Mm -hmm. But when Palestine happens, somehow, and that's the second argument, there's an innocence about it. Like, hey, we're just talking, we just want to know. And, and I think... It happens like that with Palestine, and it happens like that with issues of race in, in the Silicon Valley now known as the United States, because in the end, those positions are always anxious 
and looking and, and understand that their future is in jeopardy in recognizing truth, right? It's like, you know, you, you don't really want the person's, you really don't want to know what's in their unconscious to hear about their, un, their uncovered memories because you know that might be indicting, right? And that's kind of the world that they live in. So, you know, it's about when these invitations to, to dialogue and to salah. Mm-hmm. To um, uh, re- um, re- um, reconcile. Reconcile is really a desire, a compulsion mm. to ensure future for themselves, to ensure futurity. And their futurity, they're very- Their future, the very, way they see it. And they're yeah. very, they're very, that very futurity is always constituted on the abject relation, mm-hmm. whether it's through hierarchy or whatever, to, to the, in the case of pa- the Palestine, Palestinians, in the case of, you know, racism in the United States, you know, black folk or uh, indigenous folk. So I think that's also like yeah. this idea. And I think, again, I think that has become more, more, this is the crisis. It's the crisis in liberalism. It's the crisis in psychoanalysis. It's the crisis in our political polity today, you know? Yeah. Um, it's an undeniable sort of, yeah. we know what's happening. You're trying to save yourself. <laughs> you want to talk now. And actually Fanon says that, right? Fanon says, at the, the moment the, the native reaches for a gun, the colonizer extends like an olive branch and says, hey, let's talk. And then, of course, reaches to the, the colonized bourgeoisie as the interlocutor to sort of, you know. To snuff out that. To, to mm. talk about commonalities and humanity. They start talking about humanity there and common humanity and uh, against the violence that one would do against the colonial system. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, you said the, you know, you don't, maybe you don't want to know the unconscious right. of somebody because right. they'll, they'll disclose, disclose mm-hmm. what reality is. We have so many examples of that in the book, like these Israeli psychoanalysts who are supervisors of Palestinian trainees who are becoming clinician uh, psychologists who are trained psychoanalytically, who train their Palestinian trainees psychoanalytically and all of a sudden you see this collapse happen, like you're mm-hmm. saying, when the Palestinian patient starts to talk about their realities, mm-hmm. right? And like dictate and sort of draw the contours of the violence of everyday life, whether that's what it looks like living in a camp or on the flip side, the sort of really insidious side also is when they disclose dreams for themselves or uh, ambitions that fall outside of the racist ideas of what Palestinians can do, right? Because they're second-class citizens, which you see. And and again, some of this is very conscious. Some of it is unconscious because it's structured by racism, right? And structured by an apartheid system that already positions people as second-class citizens. So how are we expecting that all these you know, whether it's training or clinical sites or any of these things aren't also saturated with this. But all of a sudden, we have so many examples of this, of all of a sudden, the psychoanalytic uh, supervisor forgetting everything psychoanalytic and relating to the patient as just a purely behavioral being and being like, they're just anxious. Oh, this is time limited. They're done because now they're just talking. And like, we, you know, these moments where at such like affectively laden moments where the patient is 
legitimately just starting to talk and has pushed through something in the transference or counter-transference in a way where they're, they're at the precipice of some liberatory space. And we can, it's legible to us. It's very legible to the patient and the analyst clinician. And all of a sudden, that's the moment that the supervisor wants to disrupt that. And really, our reading came to be like, part of it is that if you have a talking subject, a speaking subject, they will tell you what reality actually looks like. And that's unbearable for the racist, for the settler, for whatever, to confront through the words of a patient the violence you are inflicting by mere, by merely being a settler mm-hmm. in the state, right? Because these are you're a settler interacting with indigenous people. There's violence embedded in that no matter what, no matter how good you are. There's violence embedded in that. And so we see these moments of like shutting down. And you, if you're anybody that knows psychoanalysis, looking at this and reading it and being like, this looks so obvious what's happening, mm-hmm. that you are truly stifling the truth telling to be able to continue the disavowal that is that is central to your makeup, central to your being, central to this futurity that you're talking about, right? Your version of what future looks like is what becomes primary, your primary organizing psychic force, basically. Yeah, because if you start to, if you start to recognize certain things, it's like that thread in your sweater. Like the Weezer song. <laughs> and you start pulling it and what happens to the sweater right yeah. and it just unravels so in many ways it's kind of you know the you know and in the arab american community we always hear this and you know my mom always says this and all the liberals who are maybe pro-palestine say this like oh if people only knew that's unconscious no they know it's mm-hmm. just knowledge yeah. is not the issue well, what, it's the knowledge that is produced to uphold ideological yeah. structures and the knowledge that is repressed, right? They know the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Their real with a capital R is actually the real, right? And their imaginary is actually only an apparatus to make to maintain the re- the real with a capital R, their fucking nightmares and their real their their true knowledge of things stays stays behind the bar if the if it's not too Lacanian, right? <laughs> right? I mean to keep it a bay a bay, right? So when you recognize at one moment, if you recognize that you're in Palestine and you're in Israel uh, in Israeli Jewish Israeli, and you're in a house that's older than 1948, before, before built before 1948, it's very likely that that house was inhabited by Palestinians, and which, which some people can acknowledge, but that's that those Palestinians were forcibly removed, and you're living and you're perpetuating your presence in that perpetuates, and it's a lineage to that violence. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, just that thread in acknowledging this, for example, Palestinian 
their grievance or their pain or their historical trauma. They know it. It's known. But it can't, but it must then therefore, I mean, that's how unconscious processes work, or right. So you might have a very nice Israeli in general who thinks that they care about Palestinians, but they they you can see. But don't call them Palestinians. But don't call them Palestinians. Call them Arabs. Um, so yeah, I think that's those, those are the mechanisms. I don't know right. if that's too too abstract or anything, but yeah. No, it's not no, because it's yeah. But no, it's everywhere and it's really clear. And um, I mean, even like in in the U.S., growing up in the U.S., like the with the I don't know if it's a joke or a trope or whatever they say, like, oh, don't build your house on a Native American burial ground, right? And it was like then your house will be cursed and you have bad luck. It's like the entire United States is built upon stolen land. You know, it's like, and that's like a joke that's going around or whatever. So it's like right there. Right. 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 Also, that's the kindest thing in the world if you were just cursed. <laughs> You're lucky it's just a curse. <laughs> You know? Well, in the United States too, I mean, this is the thing, there, settler colonialism works in a number of different ways. Sometimes, and this is a beauty of Patrick Wolf's work, right? it shows that it can actually work in exact opposite ways to, to maintain the same goals, right? And Patrick Wolf talks about that. So one drop of, 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 mm-hmm. of, um, of blood, blood will make a person black and one drop of white uh, blood will make an indigenous person white, right? Because it all—it's all about for different ends. For different mm-hmm. ends, it's all about the racial superiority and stealing the land and labor, right? So you have different um, configurations to meet meet the same logic and end settler colonialism, which is domination, stealing of land, right? What mm-hmm. racial supremacy? And um, the, the it's funny because, like in the United States, of course. Unlike Zionism, they didn't go there, they didn't steal land and, and rename everything necessarily, some things they did, in these fantastic things to make it their own. They actually had the sort of the gall to actually keep and mutilate indigenous names, right? So how do you live in a place called Massachusetts, right? And not say you stole the land when your place is called, the, the land It's named after the, 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 the people who you stole the land from. And then you actually come across this, this complex mm-hmm. logic of they all disappeared. Mm-hmm. You know, they gave us a turkeys and some gourds and some it was a nice day. And then, I don't know, they just walked into the woods and we never heard of them again. It's a specific type of psychosis. <laughs> I've never thought of it like that, of like the different strands, like Patrick Wolf does that we should do like a like a psychological parallel. Fifty shades, fifty shades of, of psychosis, of colonial, of, of settler psychosis. <laughs> like here's one way it can look, where you can like literally name something and pretend you made up the name, even yeah. though it was the people who lived here. Right. And here's this other type of psychosis where you literally just pretend there weren't a people. Right. Period. Right. You know. Well, you can pray to a, a wall in Jerusalem. That was built by the Ottomans and called the, right. the, the Wall of David. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it's really fun, funny how these sort of processes work. Yeah. And the myth that you mentioned is, is a functional myth. It's not a blindness, it's a functional myth. It's, yeah. Yeah. it's there because, okay, you know, okay, we, we, we killed them all, paradigm. 
um, means that they're all gone and you can't do anything about it. So there's land back kind of doesn't mean anything, right? Mm -hmm. But somehow, again, about the unconscious, it's also this, it's a disclosing upon themselves, right? The fear, the poltergeist, the poltergeist yes. uh, uh, movie is, or, or Amityville or whatever, you know, these are like their... The settler, the settler will 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 always tell on themselves. Mm -hmm. They're telling on themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. those aren't the real demons of the indigenous people who are haunting you. That, that's you. Mm. <laughs> You're haunting you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No. Exactly. Totally. Yeah, and that's why we were sort of we we really came about this because we saw these things happen over and over and over and over again in, in ways that like psychoanalysis gives us, you know, a way to read patterns and say, if you see these patterns happen, there's probably something to it, right? Um, uh, let alone the sort of overlay of the, the social and the political and the geopolitical and, and history and material reality and all these sorts of stuff. And I think that's where it comes together in the book that we don't give up any of these for the other because we see them as intimately in a very phenomenal sense as intimately involved but part of this what you're talking about is like we we, we sort of talk about this a little bit in the book about like settler reality bending mm -hmm. and that that is what constantly happens and part of what happens and especially in the case of palestine but indigenous folks the world over is a refusal to engage in that reality bending and how that refusal ends up being received as an aggression on the settler and it can be in very small ways and then very big ways, like small ways, like speaking Arabic becomes an aggression on that settler reality bending, because if you hear Arabic, then there is this unravel, like all of it is like paths to the truth that you need to like really bend to not confront every single day. And there's this like, um, I may have told you this just anecdotally, just me and you talking as friends before, but um, I will never forget driving. And I've said this to you a million times, just, just like to see the extent of reality bending just in Palestine. And, and we, all of it is Palestine to us. Like we go, it's all Palestine, right? But to see the extent of it and how casually it is, but also then to see how miserably it has failed. As somebody who's a Lebanese Arab, who we were separated from our Palestinian siblings by external forces, but we share terrain, like Lebanon's terrain looks very similar to Palestine's terrain. And I mean by like shrubbery or rocks, or you, you, feel, I, you feel like you're home. Like when I go to Palestine, I'm like, this looks like Lebanon to me. There's something very familiar about it. it's not just the people and the language it's what it looks like and I, I can't describe what that feels like to just be like I know this land I know what this looks like but we one though we take public transportation everywhere when we're in Palestine and that has been actually a political commitment of ours to be like what is it like to actually uh travel like Palestinians travel not on apartheid roads because a lot of folks who go visit who have um, passports that aren't, you know, um, that aren't the, the, the IDs, Palestinian IDs, have the ability, if they wanted to, to take apartheid roads that only Israelis can go on, right? And that means that, like, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, how far is it, uh, kilometers? 
Right. It should take 15 minutes to get to, but it takes yeah. an hour because you're going through checkpoints and you're taking public transportation and the apartheid wall snakes around, or you could take an apartheid road and it would take you enough because it, everything is easy for settlers and they, they're allowed on those roads and Palestinians are not, right? So that's what it means to really be in an apartheid state. But one time when one of our friends was driving us on those apartheid roads, I was just looking out and just taking in and you see these sort of really hideous like buildings, imports that don't belong in that space. It's like, I know what our land looks like and these imports are European or North American, whatever, like the, just the style of building and how they're built and they all look alike and they're like, and you just look around and you're like, what I see through that, I mean, obviously I see the violence of settler colonialism, but what I also struck me was I saw the rocks and I'm like, those are our rocks. I, even through all of this, I can see the shit you can't see. A settler's going to pass by that and not think twice about it because they're not of that land. They don't know the value and what that rock looks like on the other side right and how it's and how they're connected and how me as a Lebanese Arab can go there and be like this is how I'm connected to my Palestinian siblings through this and but that's part of the reality bending like here in the context of settler colonial states United States like you're just walking through and you think this is Boston and like you think there aren't indigenous people because those fixtures are not legible to you. These things aren't legible to you because you are a settler. And it's just, I guess I say that as an example of like the small and big ways in which this reality bending happens. And then to, to bring it back, why our book is about psychoanalysis and about clinicians is to say, what does it mean then when we collude as clinicians in this type of violence, small and big, you know? Yeah, so I wonder, you know, something I really haven't, we haven't really talked about, you know, so as Lars said, we really don't usually talk about, you know, Zionism, or, you know, Zionist ideology or the history of Zionism or the history of the Zionist state. We really don't because it's a lot of people doing that. And that's fine. Um, but I was just thinking about, you know, the relationship between subjects and land, right? So subject, Palestinian subjects and Arab subjects to the land, mm -hmm. which is, it's, and we say this in Arabic. It's Arab land. We say that it's Arab land, um, and 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 not to sound nationalistic or anything like this, but sort of you know Palestine, Lebanon, you know they're, they 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 are in terms of historical social relations, they're a country. They're I mean they're a country. Quotation marks. They're a social being. It's a place that you know you have hundreds of years of interrelations, and their families marrying. I mean, you know, thank you. Um, but just thinking about <coughs> the ideological apparatuses that are able to try to erase set, uh, indigenous existence and history and reality, the real reality, material reality, um, the settler ideology. And when you think about Palestine, of course, Israeli Zionists feel they have a relationship to the land. They that was the first thing that they tried to establish ideologically, even before moving there, right? And that ideological relationship to the land is, of course, mm -hmm. the Jews live in exile in Galut, 
have to come home to Palestine where they used to be. So there's this biblical mythology. So their relation to the land, this, this relationship, the Zionist relationship to the land, everyone thinks, oh, you know, Israelis have the Sabra. You know, they made the desert bloom. What are you talking about? No relation to the land. Of course they have relation. They made the desert bloom. They made this cut, right? And it's like, no, that's a psychotic relationship to the land. <laughs> because just like manifest destiny makes you think that, you know, land is yours to be claimed, right? Mm-hmm. The relationship that this intimacy, this intimacy, this compelling you know, intimacy that Zions feel to Palestine, to, to the land of Palestine, is one built on a psychosis. And, and of course, Freud says that about the Herbian wall, right? It's called a, basically a fetish, right? Um, and it's built, but the, what the power, this is what power does, this is what colonialism does. It makes a psychotic process built on disavows and, and, mm-hmm. and reality and, and rejecting reality into the normative logic of being, which is exactly facts on the ground. Facts on the ground. Mm-hmm. And that's what actually what they, that where power is, where they can create facts on the ground. Right. So you can create in, in North America a whole lore of the pioneer. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. The brave pioneer who really made this country what it is and all the things that they fought, right? And how they how they made struggle. this country struggle. Mm-hmm. The, right. And the same thing with the Sabra, right? And how they made the desert bloom and da 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 da, right? And um, but it's really one that's based. So affectively, I, I, I'm not. I, we're not disavowing that affectively. A Zionist feels a relationship with that land. They feel ownership of it. They feel ownership so much of it. They're really they're, they, they 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 dispossess ejected 700,000 Palestinians, 70% of the population in 1948, and then subjugated the rest after 1977. That's a pretty powerful compulsion. So effectively, we're not denying they have that affect. But in terms of reality, in terms of the real relations, in terms of, you know, the actual relationship, it's one that is based on fantasy. Right, okay. uh, but it becomes reality because they are empowered through a, a, a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. To enact a fantasy and make it into reality, which is basically also the, the, the story of whiteness. It's a story of white uh, European settler hegemony or colonial hegemony globally. It's how you know how the Europe sets you know spread modernity and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, right, and it's all, this is related to Patrick Wolf too, right? Who says that. Part of settler colonialism is to make the settler native and that's that is how you do Precisely. that you know Precisely. is you have this lore that then becomes normative so then like the claim even though that claim to the land that compulsion is so much so that you would do all these things the indigenous claim to the land becomes like what's aggressive <laughs> you know because you are not right it's an inversion that's the thing it's an inversion of reality and you're crazy for saying land back yeah exactly what do you mean land back that's crazy what do you want us to all just leave Right. You know? Right. So yeah, yeah. I could see um, next time I steal something and go to court and the judges in front of me, I'm like, are you nuts? You want me to give this car back? <laughs> you know? Well, all this to say, <laughs> this is why it's a psychoanalytic question too. And yeah. like all of us that 
run away from this and say, what does psychoanalysis have to do with any of this? Well, either you think psychoanalysis has the tools and the language and the depth and the expansiveness to talk about things that with this complexity, and when I say complexity, I don't mean difficulty. It's actually quite simple what we're seeing, but the, the etiology of where it comes from and why it happens, I think psychoanalysis is well positioned to do that, right? So when people respond and go, this isn't psychoanalysis, I'm like, you don't trust your theory. Like, why do you hate your theory so much? <laughs> That's what I want to say about it. Why aren't you a psychoanalyst? <laughs> No, I think psychoanalysis is perfect for addressing this because, you know, it's like when you're in, in, in an analysis or when you have are undergoing analysis and you start to see these things in your own life, then you start to see how pervasive these patterns are and, and you know, traumas are and things. And like, you can see it everywhere. And it's the same sort of thing. Once you start seeing this, it's like, you can see it at all levels. It's, it's everywhere. It's right in front of your face, you know? Yes, exactly. And that's Marcello saying hello. Oh and he's in, deep, he's in deep agreement with yes. this and, here, and here. warning the settlers that liberate yourself from your from your ideology. And I think I think it's at the recent Freud and Said uh, conference at the Freud Museum that you were at. That that was a really good point that I want to bring up as well. Is that somebody brought up to you like, oh, but isn't like the United States too far gone, and it's not possible to give land back? And I, I was just like shocked at hearing that. But of course, I, I realized that I hang out like I hang out with people that are like. <laughs> I don't know amazing and so then when I like experience other people in the world I'm like what how do you not know this yeah, yeah. and I think this is you know this we uh, we hear that a lot and I think that that is the and I think part of what we said I don't remember exactly but is that that is how settler colonial logics works so that we do have a place like the United States it's an active living breathing settler colony you know more so than, you know, it has continued, it hasn't, none of this has stopped, but that it allows us to think that this is a post-settler state, right? That somehow we're not there anymore, or like Canada is no longer there, or, or Australia, or New Zealand. And it's like, no, maybe they're, we're in different phases. And I do think that he ended up saying, like, we're in different phases of that. Okay, yes, that in terms of its its peak or its sort of activity, but but even that, it's like no, uh, on the daily, and this is what indigenous scholars and activists and folks teach us all. On the daily, people's lives are denied and they're erased constantly. This has not stopped since, you know, since contact, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. You know, but the United States is really new. That's the thing. It's like people act like this is ancient history, and it's like. Okay, I'm from Miami. Miami is a name of native peoples. And and it's like the people there, like Miami was incorporated as a city in like 1896. It's like not that long ago. And like the Seminole Wars where they're like fighting people were in like the 1890s. Like this is just a, over a hundred years ago. It's not that long ago. My house is older than that, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think it's funny because, you know, you're talking and you just think about, so the question you asked was great. And I um, I want to think that that question was a rhetorical softball question to us, right? So I think that's what I was, that's how I want to choose to 
to think that was being asked, which is sort of like asking us to flesh out, like, you know, that what we're saying, the decolonial ask of land back is not a metaphor, right? It's real, right? And I think you said it really well, because I think what we've been talking about is that, you know, the condition by which indigenous people live, whether it's in Palestine or the civil colony now known as the United States, is that we tend to think that the lives of, this is kind of riffing off what you were saying, maybe think, it's the lives of indigenous people here, we tend to think are an after effect mm -hmm. of the trauma, right? This is of course the trauma discourse within psychoanalysis and it's very it has a lot of currency today especially in, including with in terms of issues of race and blackness and you know chattel uh, slavery and these sorts of things sort of like folks live the after effect of the trauma and you talk about transgenerational trauma and et cetera et cetera and I'm not negating that necessarily or belittling it but I think it deflects from the real conditions of reality which is indigenous folk don't live the after effects of settler colonialism. They live in the reality of settler colonialism. The, the now. The now. It is meant to do that. It is meant to try to erase that, right? Mm -hmm. Black folk don't live in the after effects of chattel slavery and the transatlantic slave trade, right? They live the conditions of a racial so you know a, a racialized country and a racialized existence mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. psychoanalysis has a real challenge because you deal with subjects every day coming into <laughs> into your you know into your room right and there there you know, there's a reparative or a reproductive um, uh, challenge that they have for them Right. And so it, I think this is actually the juggernaut of psychoanalysis itself, that, that they find themselves in. Like they, they have to, they really are at some level at the subject, subjective front line about how to deal with these contradictions and these violences mm -hmm. in a very real every day. Not, oh, let me tell you, you know, because I'm, you know, mm -hmm. a great, you know, great, great guy child of a, of a slave, this is where I am. No, it's because you live in a racist society, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, that might have impacted your parents a particular way, which is fucks you up on a very personal fucking level because they're fucking damaged or they're, you know, certain, you know, have certain things going inflicted on, on, inflicted on you. So you have those right. classical sort of emotions of in relationship with, you know, your intersubjectivity, but also understanding that it is also largely socially constructed by this, so this, regime of social violence right. that is built upon your being, right? Or negating your being. Right. Um, so again, to re return back to Palestine, I think it becomes even, I think Palestine is such a live topic because it's in vivo even more, right? You see it. Mm -hmm. People are being destroyed, are still being removed from their homes. Mm -hmm. not, you know, not unlike out West with, you know, Dapple and all that sort of, by the way. Right, exactly. Or Western, the, the, in the state now known as Canada and the, the Witsuratin people. Right. Um, but we see this on a daily basis. We know every day a Palestinian is, it's a chance with death, mm -hmm. right? 
this Abdul Majid Asad, who just last week was going to work, got stopped at a checkpoint, pulled out of his car, beaten up, tied, thrown into a garbage dump, and had a, and died. Right? When he woke up in the morning, you know, he thought he was going to wake up that next day too. But that's the condition of being, mm-hmm. a, 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 it's not a condition only of living under occupation. It's a condition of being a subject under settler colonialism. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what Palestine shows us. It shows us actually, in many ways, what's happening here in a much more diffuse level. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And that's why I think we have a central role as clinicians, because you're kind of, you brought in, like, what psychoanalysis potentially can do, but also, you know, you you indirectly also signal to what we don't do, mm-hmm. right? And I think this is like my my next project is a is a book on technique on anti anti oppressive technique. I'm really interested in this question. I've been taking notes, and and part of it emerges from this work with Palestine, but also emerges from you know, some of the workshops you and I have been in and attended and sort of looked at and seeing all these things, but where this, where I'm really struck by, and this is why I wanted to do this technique project, was the ways in which we directly and indirectly deny that reality, the lived now, and we displace things into the past. Like, and in many ways, it psychoanalytic theory lends itself to that, if you want to practice that way, because for me, what I've always said is it's it's also really lends itself to attending to those daily lived now when you have an embodied living, breathing human being in front of you telling you about what is happening in their daily life as a complex human being that is at the vectors of their identities that are tied intimately into histories and relational histories. How is it that we continuously choose a technique that places it into the past? There's something there on a structural level, not on an individual level as a clinician, right? There's something that's being passed down in our curriculum, in our training, in our institutes that support that particular type of ideology. And that's settler colonial logics that then hides itself and looks like it's just normative, that we're doing a good job teaching technique, right? And I, I think I've said this before, you and I, and, and maybe even in, in one of the times I've talked to you before on this, but I can't repeat this enough, is that we're not introducing anything new. When we speak to these issues as living, breathing conditions that people are in, whether that's racism or settler colonial logics, which is a part of settler colonial logics, or classism, or fat phobia, or transphobia, or any of the things that the folks who talk to us When we bring that in, that is not an imposition. That is speaking to the truth they live every single day, which is what you're saying, right? They know it in their body. This is also what Fanon teaches us, that there's there's something, it's visceral. It lives in in the muscular. People have dreams about it. They live it every single day. They, there might be an adjustment to it so it becomes like a natural fixture, but this, I'm, I know you've had this experience. The second you bring it in, it's not like people go, oh, wait a second. Let me see. Am I really black? You know, like nobody fucking does that. Everybody knows what it means, right? And so there's something really interesting to me from a technical standpoint, but what is this? And it happens on such a grand scale 
that there's something bigger and structural happening in our field and in the way we teach it and in the way ideologically psychoanalysis is structured to have us make those technical decisions every single time to make people ghosts, to make people in the past, to make their struggles of like just a descendant mm -hmm. symptom, right? Um, yeah, I think that might have to be a chapter. Descendant symptoms. Exactly, and in fact, anytime yeah. I've said something, people go, I'm so glad you said that, actually. That's usually what I would have said. I'm so glad you said that, or thank you for saying that. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, again, it's how do we talk about psychoanalysis in a genuine, non-pedantic, but actually politically important way, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you're saying. So mm -hmm. I think... What's important, I think, what you're saying is, is that when, when the process, it's you know, psychoanalysis, like anything else, is is in is a structure as well, yeah. right? And a structure, and it, it, it does certain things, and it, it may, you know, it holds a lot of different people in a lot of different political positions, right? But you're asked at one level, what way does it collude? Mm -hmm. What ways are you being a good, you're being a good analyst or a good psychologist, if you collude, you're doing it right, right? Right, you're doing it right right now. And if you step out of that, then actually you are not, you might have an ethical boundary yep. violation, yep. ethical violation, or you're just doing something wrong, or um that's not it's, really it's, psychoanalysis. That's not really psychoanalysis. It's like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, so of course, if you're an insurgent analyst, right, or or psychologist, you know, somehow there's a conflict, and I think. It's easy for us to say, like, man, yeah, they want you to go in there and patch everybody up and send them back into the into the factories, which is like, yes, they do. But I think also just think when you think about psychoanalysis itself, you also have to think about maybe like how does it also fit into the larger systems of power? Yeah. And it's invested in its own authority. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it can hold a multitude of positions and a multitude of of, 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 of opinions. And a multitude of techniques, but there, but it's just like settled colonial logics has its own goals. Mm -hmm. Psychoanalysis's own goal is longevity, and maintaining its own authority, and its in, in, in its own position. Mm -hmm. So it'll do what it needs to do to maintain that. Yeah, you know. So you'll see it's going to be much. It has been much more race conscious much more, you know, it's made movement on the gender queer issues, right? You know, oh, wonderful, you know, but of course, because otherwise it, it, would, it, would, it, would, it might actually be confronted by, you know, the thronging masses with, with hammers to smash it to pieces. So, you know, so how, I think this is the thing about how we have to think about psychoanalysis. Yeah. I mean, how does it constantly work to maintain its authority? Right. To maintain its longevity. Yeah. You know. Which is why it's an interesting question about the seams where like it can't hold that expansion anymore, right? It'll, I mean, systems of power will expand and contract as they need to maintain themselves, right? And sort of um, maintain coherence. And so this expansion of like talking about race and all this stuff, and I don't want to be over cynical about it. There are some people who are genuinely taking these things up. I'm not saying that that's empty, Right. But we're talking about the larger structure of psychonauts. We're not talking about like individual efforts to do this. 
And if we follow that logic, then these seams where it's just too much, it's just too much for psychoanalysis. And that's where Palestine really comes in consistently, right? That's the place where we see the collapse happen. That's the place where like, I just can't hold this together with this conversation about transness, or I can't hold this together in this conversation about race. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen with those things because good Lord, you and I both have fucking seen how people just fall to pieces when you suggest that, you know, trans women are women Um, and they fall apart. Exactly. I'm just having that. Can the monster speak (laughs) is right here, which is a great example of this and not a long time ago, but, um, but that, that it's really, that's an interesting thing for us as a field to be like, can we start to be curious about where are these themes and why, and what is it that, what is this collapse actually showing us about ideology, about certain logics, about, you know, I guess what you said before is like, what is this fantasy of yourself and the, the type of future that you're trying to ensure as a field that's being threatened in this moment, mm. you know? I just also want to say, you know, what we've heard, it's funny, we've been talking to a whole, a few, a few people in actually different countries in the continent now known as Europe, even though, I don't know if Britain's in Europe anymore or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but people actually saying about psychoanalysis is thinking about, you know, this whole, you know, cliche, slightly cliche, unfortunately, discussion of like the p- politics and psychoanalysis, right? Um, but actually, re- rather than thinking about can psychoanalysis be political, can it do a certain whatever job that's, you know, that's mm-hmm. actually ethical. Um, it's returning the psychoanalytic, returning the political ethos within psychoanalysis to itself, <laughs> to, to return its disruptive esprit de corps to itself that actually was lost, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're, we very, very rarely elevate, you know, a bunch of old white folks from, you know, early 20th century Europe, but there was a disruptive element and not all of them were male, quite a few of them were, were women, um, mm-hmm. but there was a, there is something that can be fundamentally disruptive um, about psychoanalysis, yeah. which is why it's always, I think it's a very anxious, it's an incredibly anxious field, precisely <laughs> exactly. for this reason, right? Yes, especially if we're not censoring, and I know we've talked about this before, Vanessa, um, with Molly and Jamie too, like these discussions around, if we're not censoring who does psychoanalysis and where psychoanalysis happens, that's even more likely that you're going to have a disruptive psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. But this sort of like institutionalizing, constricting, policing, disciplining, um, will will it's easier to hold on to authority if you do it that way. Right. You know. Right. Yeah, and that's really at the end what all of these positionings are is positioning to keep power mm-hmm. it's really the tension between what what kind of field do we want it to be and i'm speaking as a non-clinician mind you uh do you want it to be one that is stabilizing or disruptive mm-hmm. disruptive in a good sense where you disrupt what you're disrupting is logics of violence and normativity and normativity and and uh, extraction mm-hmm. and oppression and hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? Oh, oh, is that what this field is doing can, and can do? I think mm-hmm. it can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, or are you stabilizing it? 
stabilizing, modifying, allowing it. Your psychoanalysis has an incredible way to uh, to lend elasticity to the contradictions within capitalism. Yeah. Right. Yes, I understand you're in a bad way. You know, yes, you're alienated because of capitalism, but you really are a full self. That doesn't help me. <laughs> I'm thank you for telling me I'm alienated. Can you please smash capitalism, which is the source of that? Mm -hmm. You know, or mm -hmm. racial capitalism. You know what I mean? So I mean, this is a this is the tension within psychoanalysis. Again, just to return to what we were saying in the beginning, I think this moment now is the moment where that sort of contradiction cannot no longer be held. Yeah. It's one of those moments, one yeah. of those moments. Yeah. I think there have been several in the past. And that's where you have this wonderful, beautiful tension, this 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 uh, rise of some amazing, amazing people in your field. You know, recognition of the elders who've done the work mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. So there really is this sort of... Uh, groundswell that 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 kind of tells us about this moment you know and i also think that also allows that groundswell that sort of that moment that that, that sort of you know change has allowed us to speak about palestine yeah yeah you know? and and if the folks in palestine are doing this work like as a natural part of their living right mm -hmm. where they're like that separation is yeah. not there so when you talk to them there isn't this of course, they speak about the tension, technical tensions around when is this, when's it a stand-in, when's it because they're incredibly versed in psychoanalytic theory and process and technique. Mm -hmm. But one thing fundamentally is there is no, there's no split between the clinic and what's happening outside, mm -hmm. right? Because like in one of the cases when you have tear gas pouring through the, the windows and you're sitting with a patient, how, how do you maintain a position that the outside is separate? You know, you're both inhaling the tear gas and we know who that tear gas comes from. It's the occupying power that's outside that's leaking in tear gas, right? Land back, free Palestine. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Drs. Lada and Stephen Shiha. Be sure to check out their book, Psychoanalysis Under Occupation. For more, you can listen to previous episodes of Rendering Unconscious podcast, Rendering Unconscious episode 43 and 143 with Dr. Lada Shiha as well as Rendering Unconscious, episode 61, with Dr. Stephen Shiha. Be sure to follow them on social media at Psychoanalyst Activist, Decolonizing Humanities, and Decolonizing Photography at Instagram. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. And now, Unity Via Plurality. From the album, Switching Mirrors. Enjoy.
growing infinitely. Before she further delve into the symbolism and background, the personality, pronoun, we, which is where, and feel your breath, set themselves free. Thanks. Unity via plurality? Seen is never consciously introduced. Opposites combining. You will see the tendency. Edging the is the key. Truly transformed to shout. Gregarious form can certain stage to thee provided it is animated. We are situated in this gap. This of two, the client's dead, were slowly budding, growing infinitely. Energy, you of ways, whether you are, the pair began to attract. That pause, the mirror. A new way out of samsara, reflective of Jung's archetypes. We will discuss each of these in snakes. Wisdom is the major arcana, is the key to the sessions, life has yours, my love. Better or for, lies be, lulling yet provocative. Works thank you for your collaboration, but they can also create themselves on their starring own, thus of the angels, your interpersonal relationships, messenger like a mask, your soul. Mirroring work has begun. Consciousness into a more originally delineated by love to one. Eros is the burning one. Not at all. I would say it via the cutting up and have you done anything good? We are able to be. I've not done anything. But the pieces to create already know this. Tomorrow should you don't. I can take one of those we feel got into the sing-song correlatives of it. That is, ever then, named, and the clients would answer, but they are affirmations, would confirm, yet they made know this eclipse period, and forth would develop a new way out of samsara. Cut-ups were used.